Welcome to the McCarthy Report, the podcast where you would normally hear Rich Lowry and Andy McCarthy discuss the latest legal and national security issues. Rich is out this week, so you're hearing me, Noah Rothman, instead. This week, we will discuss Trump's civil fraud verdicts and his upcoming criminal trials, the Biden family in the dock, and Russian spycraft of such intrigue it rivals a Cold War novel. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please give this podcast and Andy McCarthy the glowing, indeed gushing five-star review it and he deserves on iTunes. And now, without further ado, I welcome to this podcast none other than its eponymous host, Andy McCarthy. Andy, how are you? Noah, I'm doing great. How are you? Very good, sir. Although I'm a little confused and I'm going to need you to hold my hand through all this. So let's Let's start with the New York civil fraud trial. Uh, Judge Arthur Engeron last week found Donald John Trump liable for inflating the value of his assets and defrauding investors, even though those investors seem to have been perfectly satisfied with their loans. Nevertheless, $355 million, uh, with interest around $450 million, barred from doing business in New York for three years. What are the contours of this verdict for me and other non-lawyers who are just wrapping our hands around this thing? Well, it was expected. Uh, it, it comes at the end of an 11 week trial. And then another month or so, I think we waited for Engeron uh, to render his ruling. And it's interesting, Noah, that it's Engeron who's rendering the ruling. I think one of the issues that will come up on appeal is why this was a bench trial. Um, they ended up with a bench trial in front of an elected progressive Democrat judge. Um, who was pretty hostile to Trump from the beginning. The, what the the main um, gravamen of, of the case is that uh, Trump alleged, it's alleged, uh, and there's pretty compelling evidence to support this, that he inflated the value of his assets uh, for purposes of getting uh, loans and insurance coverage uh, and the like. Um he was prosecuted in part under a consumer fraud statute that the context of which is usually um, an allegation of persistent fraud committed by a business that's dealing with small dollar consumers. So it's kind of like a class action in the sense that no one person has the incentive to uh, to bear all of the burdens and financial um, pain of doing litigation. Um, so this is a method for the state to come in uh, and go after somebody in that uh, situation who defrauds consumers. Here, um, for according to the Associated Press, the first time ever, uh, and this goes back, I guess, 70 years, uh, this statute was used against Trump in the context of dealings between sophisticated financial actors on each side of the transaction where it would be expected that both sides do, um, you know, their own due diligence, um, and as a result, with all of the allegations that uh, Tish James, the attorney general, made here, there were no victims, and in the main uh, fraud count, which is section sixty-five twelve of the New York business law, it's a monstrous statute in this context. Um, no requirement even to prove intent to defraud. Um, and at the end of 11 weeks, at the beginning of the trial, 
Um, before the trial even started, Judge Engeron found that Trump was liable for fraud. So really the trial, um, which in part was about the other six causes of action in the case, besides the the first big one on the this overarching fraud count, um, really what the trial was up was about was how much Engeron was going to let Tish James run up the score in terms of uh, financial penalty to Trump on a theory of what they call disgorgement, uh, because they couldn't show any individual fraud victim. Uh, the idea was that the state was going to take from him his ill-gotten gains. And as, Ill, as Judge Engeron uh, explained, the law under this statute doesn't require a victim. And it, it all it calls for is for the fact finder, in this case, the judge, to make an assessment of how much the uh, defendant earned by means of uh, falsity and misrepresentation, whether anyone right. else thinks they were harmed. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not just the monstrous size of this judgment, but the fact that they're prosecuting this at all, that's kind of abnormal, that has the business, the high dollar business community in New York up in arms. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I mean, two things on that score. First, it's, it, people should remember that this is the case that the prosecutors looked at in New York and decided not to bring. It was originally an investigation by my old office, the Southern District of New York on the federal side. Uh, they decided to abandon it. Uh, it was picked up by Cy Vance, who was then the attorney general, uh, the uh, Manhattan District Attorney, right? Uh, he was ultimately replaced by Alvin Bragg when Bragg was elected. But they made two trips up to the Supreme Court to compel Trump to turn over his financial records, thinking, I think, that this was going to be the mother load of a big financial RICO case uh, that my old criminal division chief, um, Mark Pomerantz, was brought into the DA's office to try to build. Uh, and then when they got, finally, access to Trump's records, I think they recognized, even though uh, Pomerantz wanted to go forward with the case, um, Alvin Bragg who you know, isn't embarrassed even to bring the hush money case against Trump, looked at all this and decided there was no case there. There was no fraud case. Um, and I think that's because they would have had to, had to apply the penal law, which is more demanding and has a higher burden of proof. And there would have been a very high chance of, uh, even in New York, of acquittal, they felt. Uh, so they passed on the case. Tish James then scooped it up. And she has the statute that the criminal prosecutors don't have the advantage of. And she also has the lower civil version of burden of proof uh, of a mere preponderance of the evidence. So she decided to pick up the case and run with it. Uh, but interesting, interestingly, at the beginning of the case, she said her damages were $250 million. And then after 11 weeks of proving no victims, she said at the end she thought her damages were actually $370 million. And essentially, Judge Engeron, who was a rubber stamp for her throughout the, the case, pretty much gave her everything she asked for. Uh, so let's talk about uh, <clears throat> Trump team's prospects for appeal. In your piece, Trump's appellate prospects after ruinous civil fraud judgment, um, you outline why they're not – Horrible, but not great, those prospects. Um, the idea here is they can seek the reduction of the penalty, but why, 
And explain this to me, because we have a judge here who essentially predetermined the outcome of this case in, in all but you know, explicit terms. Um, and sure, the Trump team, as I understand it, didn't seek a jury, uh, but nevertheless, they could bring that up uh, on appeal. And the, just the size of the verdict is just exorbitant. And, you know, they're, they're saying Eighth Amendment violation, who knows, but nevertheless, you know, they got a case there. Why, why do you have a little bit more suspicion there? Than, than a layman would suspect that this would just yeah. be kind of open and shut. So I, I did um, appellate litigation for a long time uh, as a federal prosecutor. Um, and what people need to understand about appeal, and I, th- this, isn't a, this is simply how it works. Um, appellate courts are very reluctant to reverse findings of fact made by the trial court. The theory is that the trial judge... Um, even in a jury trial, and here you have a situation where the judge was the jury, but the trial court observed the witnesses testify, saw the dynamic of the trial as it unfolded, and knows more about the evidence in the case, having made the evidentiary admissibility rulings, than an appellate court does looking at a cold transcript. So if you're talking about conclusions of law, an appellate court has no reluctance at all about second-guessing a trial court. But if you're talking about conclusions of fact, whether it's made by a jury or, in this case, a judge, um, appellate courts generally will not touch the fact-finding unless it's utterly irrational, that it, you know you can make a conclusion on the four corners of the page that, uh, that, it's, you know, that it's just off the charts wrong, which is unusual. So the reason, Noah, I think that... Um, the the appellate prospects are not great here in terms of a sweeping win. And that's what I'm talking about because what Trump would need here is a sweeping win. Like winning a few things on appeal doesn't help him because he could otherwise, uh, based on the, the sweeping nature of this judgment, he could really be put out of business even if he gets some relief on the on the financial end. And the thing is, Trump's main theory here, we could talk about what his legal claims are. But his main theory is that Engeron is just flatly wrong about the valuations on his property. One of the ones, and here's a good example, one of the ones that Trump has harped on the most, I think, is Mar-a-Lago, where he keeps saying that the judge valued Mar-a-Lago at only $18 million, and it may be worth, according to Trump, somewhere between $500 million and a billion dollars. Um, so he basically scoffs that um, Engeron came, came up with this number. And in point of fact, Engeron didn't come up with that number. That number, which is actually not 18 million, Trump lowballed it because it helps him rhetorically, but it was 18 to 27 million. And it's done by an independent assessor who, applying Florida law, assesses the value of the property in terms of all of the legal encumbrances that exist on the property. So Trump is talking about what Mar-a-Lago would be worth if he could sell it free and clear. And what the assessment is about is what Mar-a-Lago is worth if you had to buy it with all the restrictions that are on it so that Trump could get the tax breaks that he has down in, uh, down in Florida. So just take something like that. Um, an appellate court is not going to reverse Judge Engeron's conclusion of what Mar-a-Lago was worth 
in terms of whether Trump outrageously overvalued it. So if an independent assessor is saying it was 18 to 27 million and Trump is using four or five times that amount in his statement of financial conditions, the appellate court is going to side with the judge on that, not with Trump. So if you're talking about other things like you just mentioned, like the jury trial, you know, there you got a shot at getting him to make a different legal conclusion. I cut you off. No, 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 because this is the evaluation, I think, that has you in hot water with Trump's legal team. One of his most visible attorneys, Alina Haba, took took a lot of uh, issue with uh, your assessment in that piece, which everybody should go read. Um, You were very charitable in your reaction to her assessment. She's just being a bulldog for her client. You know, well, go, she go is, you know, her. she's, she's doing what she should do. And I'm trying to do what I should do, which is just try to be objective about it. And I thought I made pretty clear in the piece. I hope tr- Trump wins. I would prefer, I think it, I don't really care so much about Trump, but I think it would be better for the business climate and the legal climate in New York, wh- which I care a great deal about having, having come from there. I think it would be much better. Um, if Trump won the appeal, I just want to I, I just think, though, that we need to be realistic about what's achievable and what's not. He's got a few claims, I think, um, that could result in a complete reversal. One is the Eighth Amendment claim that uh, has been bandied about. This is a very tough one, but basically the Eighth Amendment um, bans, in addition to cruel and unusual punishment, um, uh, excessive excessive fines. fines, right. Um, and this fine seems very excessive. Now they will say that, uh, they have a formula that they rolled out during the trial. They had an expert witness come in and make an assessment of how much Trump would have had to pay in terms of interest and coverage costs, uh, if he had honestly, um, laid out what the value of his assets were. And then they compute you know, the, the value of the properties and the value of the loans and the coverage that he got. And they have this factor that they came up with in this appraisal of, uh, you know, what the interest rate should have been rather than what it was. And they multiply that by the loans and that's how they get the disgorgement. Um, th- to me, that's a dicey formula. So that, that might be, uh, uh it, it seems very odd to me to, to, to think that, um, you have, for example, J.P. Morgan Chase or Deutsche Bank who employ entire teams of people who do risk assessment and who didn't take Trump's word for it about what his assets were worth. They did their own appraisals. And if you want to tell me that you know New York State, which is not in this business, unlike Chase and, and, uh, and Deutsche Bank, um, that New York State has an expert who's going to come in and he's going to do a better job appraising what the risk was than the people who actually had skin in the game. I think a, an appellate court um, might have a, a great deal of interest in that because this is not like a straight factual finding. It's a very creative way to, to assess what the damages were. Um but I, I think in particular, given that there were no victims who came forward and a lot of people testified on Trump's behalf that they were happy to do business with him, that they do business with him again and they all made money, uh, it, it's going to be hard, I think, for New York to to defend 
you know, maybe Trump should have been fined $10 million for overstating his assets. You know, that uh, I think that would be high, but that would be a lot more reasonable than $355 million with interest. So uh, I, it's hard for me to disentangle Haba's comments with Trump's comments and the politics of all this, and it's clearly a political football. But before we get to that, um, just briefly, I think you uh, you think that the financial hardship here is going to be close to prohibitive. For Donald Trump, I, if yeah. I understand it right, to, to even appeal require is not a cost-free proposition, right? And does he have it? I mean, if the if the shoes are any indication, if the gaudy shoes <laughs> that tell you us anything about the state of his finances, it ain't great. Tell me, you didn't get yours yet? Are you? Kidding? I haven't gotten my pair of gold <laughs> Nikes yet. I think they might have sold out. Also, I think that's that would be the cost of a Florida vacation too. My, so, uh, you know, my you favorite prioritize in life. My favorite part of that was the thing that said limit three per customer. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was the best touch of all. Not enough for the whole family. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, So here's here's where I think this – Rich and I have discussed this a number of times on the podcast. And my my usual comment has been as interesting as the criminal trials are, and they present a lot of very interesting issues and they have a lot of – potential risk for Trump in terms of imprisonment and, you know, just a stigma of of conviction. But I always said, don't go to sleep on the civil fraud case, because in terms of how Trump, um, you know, survives in terms of business and, and, uh, and finance, it's an existential event for him. And that was when we were thinking the damages at most were 250 million. As it turns out, with interest, it's almost twice what it was at the beginning. So my point about this is not limited just to this case, although this case would be enough of a catastrophe if it was just by itself. But in the last year, he got a $5 million judgment against him in the first E. Jean Carroll case, an $83 million judgment in the second one, and now this $355 million with interest closer to $400 and 50 million. Unlike in criminal cases where you get an automatic appeal, in civil cases you are expected to post the value of the judgment with the court um, because they want to make sure that you're not appealing just for purposes of delay and that you will actually pay up if you if we give you an appeal and you lose you have to pay, right? So that's that's what the theory is here. So Trump has had to put up about six million to appeal the five million verdict because you have to do it with uh, with interest. Uh, he was liquid enough, as I understand it, to to um, to post that with the court on January twenty sixth. The jury in the second Eugene Carroll case uh, rendered the eighty three point three million dollar verdict. Trump has until it's thirty days to appeal. So Trump has until really, I think, the beginning of next week to decide whether he's appealing that. If he's going to do that, he's got to post about $90 million to do that. Now, you don't have to, you don't have to post it in cash. Um, you can get a bond. You'll have to pay a significant amount of cash, but you can, the bondsman is going to make you secure the rest of it with enough property that he can execute on it if you – um, don't fulfill your obligations under the bond. So whether it's money or property, he's got to post it if he wants to appeal. 
And then now you have this uh, appeal, which will require him to post. It's usually 120% of the judgment amount. So here they're already factoring in interest. I think we're we're conservatively talking four hundred and thirty to four hundred and fifty million dollars that he would have to post in in money or property. So if you put that all together, we're talking about tying up over half a billion dollars in his assets. And it's not like this guy doesn't have other stuff going on. So for example, I think it was twenty twenty one. Forbes did an analysis of the big of the big loans that he has due. And as I understand it, one of them, which is in connection in part with Trump Tower in Manhattan, he's got a $425 million loan that's either got to be paid or renegotiated this year. And the restrictions on the judgment obviously go much further than the financial penalty. The judge has said that basically he can't do business or take loans in New York anymore. But I think it's not going to be just New York, Noah, because like, what other bank is going to lend this guy that kind of money under these circumstances? And one of the things that came the out- RNC. Was, <laughs> yeah, good luck. If they had, imagine if they had half a billion right, dollars, right? right. right? Uh, maybe he, go, he should go to the DNC. Maybe they'll help him out. Um, <laughs> but- you know, I, I just think um, a number of these loans was proved in the trial. Trump was required to personally be the surety for loans that were given to the Trump organization. And the loan conditions on, on a number of them, the big ticket items, would be that he had to show that he maintained personal wealth of over $2 billion as a condition to get the loan. He may have been worth over $2 billion when he got those loans. Is he worth over $2 billion today? I don't know. Yeah. So last one, because I don't want to go too long on this, um, but on the politics of it. So Trump was um, on uh, Laura with Laura Ingram, Fox News Channel, yep. where he called his treatment at the hands of Judge Engeron a form of Navalny, likening his treatment to the imprisonment of a Russian dissident in a Siberian labor camp where he mysteriously died. Seems qualitatively distinct to me. Nevertheless, <laughs> a, for, a form of the populist argument, they're coming after me to get to you. So why should I too believe that I'm at risk of this sort of treatment, inflating <laughs> the value of my $10,000 penthouse in Manhattan and defrauding my investors? I'm, I'm struggling to put myself in the gentleman's shoes. Yeah, well, now that they've, now that they've crashed that... Uh that glass ceiling, maybe they will come after you too. I mean, somebody <laughs> had to be the first, the first case, but, but you know, but let's I, take, it, take it seriously, you know, on the, on the prospects of, uh, you know, obviously the government can, uh, can ruin you, uh, with, with a, uh, a frivolous accusation. Yep. Um, and, and the penalties for, for that kind of abuse are hard to pursue unless you're very liquid and, and have a lot of money at your, your, your appeals or your disposal. So where's the truth in that? I would say two things about it. Number one, to the extent that people think that Trump is the only person that this could happen to, which seems to be what the New York officials are saying, including Kathy Hochul, who the governor who uh, you know tried to convey that message in her comments last week, even though you have a lot of big business people who are saying, if I can get out of New York, I'm getting out of. So, but I don't. I want to. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, but yeah, I sure. want to chase that one down too because Bill uh, uh, Trump is essentially arguing that this is the government tr essentially going after him and him alone, as though it's a, it's an, an act of attainder, a bill of attainder. 
this is obviously a shock that's bad for business, but if that argument takes hold, it would have per a perverse effect of soothing frayed nerves, right? They're going after me because I poked my head up above the parapet. Unjust though that may be. Yeah, but I, I still think that having done it now and shown that it works and it, it looks to me like it's going to work. I mean, we'll have to see how the appeal floats out. But, you know, <sighs> Trump may be the personal embodiment of everything that New York Democrats hate, but he's he's not the only embodiment. You know, they don't like gun manufacturers. They don't like fossil fuel businesses. They don't like a lot of stuff. And I think that the, the thing, Noah, that has importantly changed about New York, and I want to say the legal culture, but I think it's the broader culture as well. Um, in the 80s and 90s, when I was a prosecutor in New York and Bob Morgenthau for a million years was um, the district attorney in Manhattan, it would have been disqualifying to go to the electorate because the state officials are are elected, right? They're not. They're not. We federal guys were appointed. They're elected. Um, it would have been disqualifying in the culture of that time to go to the electorate and say, "If you put me in office, if you elect me, I will use the power of the office against our X, Y, and Z political enemies." Now, fast forward to, I don't know when Tish James first ran, I want to say like 2017, 2018, something like that. Um, she campaigned promising to use the power of the office against Trump. And she won in a landslide. Um, Alvin Bragg, as part of his campaign, now, you know, understanding that not a lot of people, you know this stuff better than I do, not a lot of people vote in the DA's election, right? They probably got more votes voters this year because the mayor election was on the same day. But, you know, that was a broad field. I think he won with something like 50,000 votes. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, enormous. But um, his campaign was, when I was a New York state official, I sued Trump more than any other state attorney. So I think what's changed culturally is there was a, there was a center left and right in New York that made up the heartland of the legal culture for decades. And it was expected that you would, even if, even if people didn't do this, it was at least expected that you would represent, that you would enforce the law with no fear or favor, that it would be even handed, that we believed in equal protection of law. I don't think progressives are on that program. I think they have no problem with the idea of using the power and the processes of the state against their perceived political enemies. And that's now an ascendant philosophy. And we have to get used to the fact that that's just the way it is. I, I don't think the Navalny thing is, um, is helpful to Trump. I remember when we were doing the blind shake case, it occurred to somebody on our team um, that, you know, Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, um, Kampf in German, as I understand it, means struggle, which is the same thing that jihad means. Um, so somebody suggested that in one of our jury addresses, we make a, an analogy to what, um, to the Sheikh's writings and, um, Mein Kampf. And we ended up pushing back on that and saying that was not a great idea just because you don't want to do those kinds of, you know, the, the, that regime is historically uniquely evil and those kind of comparisons just are not are not helpful. And I feel the same way about Navalny. I, I can 
I can detest what's be, what's happening to Trump here, even though I don't have a lot of personal sympathy for Trump. But I think what the, the lawfare campaign in general uh, is detestable, and it's breaking norms that we're going to regret are broken. I think you can make that point without the Navalny comparison. Yeah, I completely agree with you about the implications of this sort of thing, that nothing happens in a vacuum. And if deterrence has broken down in that sense, and progressives perceive themselves to be at liberty to persecute their political adversaries through the law, you can expect the same thing to happen to Democrats in Republican led slates with Republican DAs. And it would be, it would just be, you know, to, to break a seal that we certainly don't want broken. Let's pivot now to the president and his family. Um, the president's brother, Joe Biden was in Capitol Hill yesterday testifying uh, around some of the issues involving him and Hunter Biden and the corruption allegations that are swirling around the president himself. National Review news writer James Lynch has a very good piece on this. Five major questions lawmakers should ask Joe Biden's brother. I urge you to go read it. Why don't we get a, a brief update on where Jim Biden fits in this in this uh, milieu of scandal before we get to the big fun stuff around <laughs> the Soviet intrigue that has apparently overtaken uh, the American legal class. Let's uh, let's start with with J Jim Biden and try to help me understand why, for example, he feels like he needs plausible deniability. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that one of the things that it's important to start with on this, Noah, is that when you're dealing with political actors and political corruption type cases, and I, I saw this a number of times as a prosecutor in political corruption cases, um, what you need plausible deniability for or from is not necessarily criminal activity, although it could be criminal. The, the thing that political people, especially those who have ideas about potentially running for even higher office, as Biden did uh, in the years after uh, the Obama administration, is it would be bad for Biden to be seen as in a business partnership with apparatchiks of the Chinese Communist Party, whether or not it was illegal. So... You know, a lot of the reason I think it's important to make the distinction between, you know, icky behavior and uh, illegal behavior is because when these things start to unfold, those things get conflated, especially by people who are trying to defend the people who are suspects. So, for example, the Democrats keep saying there's nothing wrong. They haven't shown anything wrong. Um and what they what they mean by that, if you try to pin them down, is that the Republicans haven't come up with any proof that would enable a prosecutor to indict Biden for either bribery or some other kind of political corruption charge. But in terms of um, political authority and what the framers were worried about, for example, in enacting the impeachment clause – um, they weren't worried about crime. They were worried about the awesome powers of the presidency being purchased by foreign powers. That was one of their major concerns. So it's kind of neither here nor there whether somebody is actually guilty of a penal offense if what if what the big problem is, as, as the Republicans have been able to establish thus far, is that, for example, in the five years between 2014 and 2019, um, basically agents of corrupt and anti 
American regimes managed to pay $24 million to either Biden family associates or Biden family members, usually through a series of Byzantine transactions using a lot of LLCs that anybody who was in the, you know, the, the organized crime investigation business would recognize as the patterns of money laundering. It doesn't mean necessarily that there was money laundering, but that, that is, uh, is pretty common. Um, and the, the disturbing thing about these transactions, a slice of which Jim Biden got a good amount of money from, especially from the, um, from the Chinese business partners of, of the Bidens, is when you look at big dollar transactions, it doesn't matter how big the dollar amount is if you can see an asset changing hands. Like money goes one way and the asset comes the other way, then you know you can, you can see um, why that's a legitimate transaction. When you look at these transactions, there doesn't seem to be any asset changing hands. The money is going to the Bidens, but what is going in the other direction? And what seems to be the only commodity that's sensible, that's at issue, is access to Joe Biden and his political influence. And really, a number of the witnesses that the Republicans have called in this investigation have as much as confirmed that, um, including Devin Archer, who was Hunter Biden's partner, who basically said we were selling what they called euphemistically the Biden brand. Um, And the idea was this is worth worth it to people to contribute to, not necessarily even to get him to do anything for them, so much as to be able to project the image that they are insiders, which is has a discouraging effect on people who might otherwise investigate them or or right. cause them some And the democratic of- defense, as we understand it, is that that was all a lie. It was just an illusion. So Hunter Biden, Jim Biden, everybody around him, Devin Archer, Bobolinsky, they were all just con men. Right, doesn't sound like a very effective defense, but that is what they're running with. Yeah, and they have, uh, you know, the committee is pushing back with, you know, first of all, there's no business without Biden. And as somebody who worked in government for a long time and had to deal with all the conflict of interest regulations and everything else, the thing that I find the most disturbing about this is that someone in Biden's position could have shut this down in five minutes if he didn't want it to go on. So for example, let's take it from the Democrats point of view, right? They have this big dinner in uh, at the Cafe Milano in Washington in 2015 where Biden shows up, Joe Biden shows up, he's vice president at the time, and let's say he thought that he was meeting Hunter for dinner. And he it turns out that he showed up and there's a bunch of Hunter's business partners from all over the world there, including from Burisma, the corrupt uh, uh, oil company in Ukraine. Um, so maybe he doesn't want to embarrass Hunter, right? And he they have dinner and they have the evening and he hangs you around. You should react like Joe Pesci walking into getting made in that situation. That is, <laughs> that is where you turn around. Oh, no. Walk out. Yeah, right. Well, that's exactly what you do do. So let's say he doesn't want to embarrass his son, though. And they have the dinner and it's all fine. As soon as he gets home, he's picking up the phone and saying, don't you dare ever put me in that position again. What are you, out of your mind? And instead, what we hear is quite the opposite. What what, what happened was Biden had many meetings with uh, partners of uh, of Hunter. He made many phone calls. 
we've heard testimony from Devin Archer that um, the the Burisma guys, the the corrupt Ukrainian oil company, um, having paid Hunter millions of dollars to be on their board for when he has no skill set that would would uh, be uh, value producing for uh, for Burisma. Um, when they have their board meeting in Dubai in, uh, I think it was late 2015, um, they, after the board meeting, they meet up with Hunter and Devin at a luxury hotel in Dubai, and they say, we need you to get your father on the phone. And they actually do, Hunter does make the call, and they put him on the speakerphone. And they, you know, basically what Burisma is saying is, we need help here. We need somebody from the American government to stop the prosecutors here from going after uh, Zlochevsky, who was the head of Burisma, and the company. And eight days later, Biden is in Ukraine as vice president. And by his own telling, he threatened the Ukrainian government that if they didn't uh, fire the prosecutor— uh, he was going to withhold a, a billion dollars in American aid. Right. And the, uh, the Democratic defense to that is that is consistent with what was American policy at the time that this prosecutor was a corrupt prosecutor. They wanted him out. Everybody wanted him out. That was above board. But Mikola Zolchevsky, Burisma, bribed the Bidens. Yeah. I mean, that was what Hunter. What, what else can you say about <laughs> it? Yeah. Well, here's what you could say about it. The minute Joe Biden wasn't vice president anymore, Zolchevsky slash Hunter's compensation in half. You know, I mean, they weren't even subtle about what it was, and they paid him millions of dollars. I think it was like $3 million that they that they paid in the end. So is that prosecutable? It might be, but it's real. Whether it is or it isn't, it's really bad. And I think that when Jim Biden, for example, according to – now, I think he denies this – but according to Tony Bobolinsky, who was brought in to, to build a corporate structure of this deal that they were doing with this Chinese, what turns out to be really a Chinese intelligence operation called CEFC. But Bobolinsky says he's talking to Biden and says, like, aren't you worried this guy, he could run for president? This is, this is not exactly the a business deal that he wants to be in. And Bobolinsky is very clear about this. He said, look, if I thought anything criminal was going on here, I wouldn't have been involved in it. So you're not talking about like Bobolinsky's worried that he's involved in some kind of a criminal fraud. What he's basically saying is, I- I'm just a guy trying to make money. It's not illegal in this country to do business with the Chinese, but it's not good for a politician who has aspirations for high office to be doing business with the Communist Party of China. Um, and it was in that context that Jim Biden said, according to Bobolinsky, uh, plausible deniability in connection with Biden. It wasn't necessarily that they were trying to de- you know, have plausible deniability because they thought they were doing something criminal. It's because they thought they knew they were doing something that was really sleazy. It was, it was corrupt. It was self-dealing. That doesn't necessarily make it a, a prosecutable public corruption case, but it's very disturbing. Okay. Now let's pivot to the fun stuff. Alexander Smirnov, Alexander Smirnov, <laughs> who <laughs> last week um, was a, he was an FBI confidential source, um, and according to court documents filed this week, he admitted that uh, quote officials associated with Russian intelligence were involved in passing the stories about Hunter Biden 
to the government. They got laundered into the political political conversation. They're a part of these accusations that Republicans have been levying against the Biden family. And some on the left are now declaring absolute victory that this was all a compromise op- operation, even though Hunter Biden's laptop was verified, the contents of it were verified by the FBI and I think the IRS. Nevertheless, they're saying this is this guy's a star witness and he's just collapsed, therefore the case has collapsed. Now, Jim Jordan uh, did submit a letter for a request for an, uh, an interview with a State Department official saying, uh, n- naming Alexander Smirnov uh, in the documents and subsequently withdrew that letter and then replaced that information uh, and just dropped the name of this particular informant. But by, n- by no means was he a star witness or the key to this case. Is Are Democrats just sort of flailing here? I mean, this feels like 2016. It's got all the, all the flavor of a 2016. What do they got? Uh, what do the Russians got on on Hillary Clinton, what do they got on us? I feel like John Podesta is going to jump out of the woodwork <laughs> any, any minute now. And, you know, say my emails. Um, but what, yeah, help me untangle this. Well, it, it is 2016 and it's a lot like 2019. And I actually think 2019 is, is probably what locks it in because the Democrats story, if you recall during the Trump impeachment of uh, the Ukraine impeachment of 2019 was that um, the Biden Burisma corruption claims that were hot and heavy back then, and that were a, a major part of the, you know, Trump's pushback on the impeachment. Um, their view of it, and what they want, or at least their uh, story about it, uh, was that it was Russian disinformation, and that Rudy Giuliani was the one who was doing all the investigation in Ukraine, and he basically had been had by Russian disinformation. And that Rudy was the source of all of the bad information about the Bidens, and he was being played. Uh, by Russian intelligence. Now, um, that story went so far that the FBI um, actually pushed on the uh, social media companies to suppress information about Hunter Biden on the theory that the laptop story was Russian disinformation. And they did that even though the FBI had had the laptop for over a year and had subjected it to forensic testing and knew that it was not Russian disinformation, but they still suggested it to the social media companies. And of course, we also had that letter from the 51 uh, former uh, security officials conveniently put out like a couple of days before the foreign policy debate between Biden and Trump, uh, which Biden relied on to try to dismiss the allegations as as Russian disinformation. So this idea that this all is Russian disinformation uh, is something that's been baked in the cake really since 2019, for sure. Um, and I think that's the background. Well, there's so much more meat on the bones now, though. Yeah. The, the notion that this alone would, would break up this case is bizarre. It's all but been confirmed. Yeah. I, and, you know, if you look at what they have, I, I actually think this is kind of... Um, this is I don't want to I don't I don't want to use the word stupidity, but the, I can't I can't help but uh, believe that uh, this is what it is. A fine word and it has a, a useful place. Well, yeah. And it, I think it, it may be apt here because Chris Ray, the FBI director, fought tooth and nail when the the congressional committees tried to get this document about Smirnoff, which is called the 1023 form. Right. This is the standard FBI form for basically debriefing a, you know, re- reporting the 
and recording the statements made by a confidential human source. And a confidential human source is a bureau term of art for basically an informant that they sign up because they find him to be credible and useful, and they use him in various um, investigations. And according to the FBI, up until five minutes ago, this guy was a very useful, highly credible informant. That's what they said about him. Um, and if this story that that uh, Weiss is telling in this indictment, David Weiss being the uh, the quote unquote special counsel, I always have to say faux special counsel with him because he's he's not legally entitled to credit. He doesn't have the credentials to be a special counsel under the regs, but be that as it may, if the story he's telling is true, it'd be interesting to see if the justice department and the FBI notify the courts and defense lawyers in all the cases that this guy uh, helped them make uh, that, you know, gee, never mind those convictions because it turns out that we built the case on somebody who turns out to be a, a complete fraud. Um, but this is a very peculiar situation. Um, and I think what happened was Ray told Jordan and Comer, the, the chairs of these committees that were pushing this investigation, you know, look, this is uncorroborated informant information. Um, he didn't want to turn over the report. He only really turned over the report because he understood that a whistleblower had given it to, I think, uh, Senator Grassley. Um, and so he figured the cat was out of the bag, so he shared the report with them. He pleaded with them not to go public with it, um, in part because they hadn't corroborated the information, and in part because it's really bad to go forward with informant information because the Bureau has to convince informants that we can maintain their confidentiality and protect them. Uh, so when you run out publicly and you do this sort of thing, that undermines what the Bureau's message is in trying to get cooperation from people. But nevertheless, these guys took this report, and because it said that Zlochevsky had told the confidential human source, we now know to be Smirnov, uh, that he had bribed Biden and Hunter, both uh, you know Joe and Hunter, uh, $5 million apiece, $10 million, and that he had done it in such a, um, a Byzantine way that it would take 10 years for an investigator tracing all the leads to, to figure it out. Um, and they thought that, you know, look, this matches up with the evidence that we've already gathered. Sounds like it's credible. It's millions of dollars coming into the Bidens. It's allegedly a transaction that's structured in a very strange way to, to make it uh, difficult to trace. We're going to run with it. And, and, you know, Ray told them they were making a mistake. They did it anyway. And the problem is now, assuming that this guy is, that his story was a complete lie, which is what Weiss alleges, the problem the Republicans have for themselves is they've taken a witness that they didn't need and who was not essential to the story, but they like the add-on that he gave to them because it, it kind of um, it was consistent with what they had otherwise proved. Now that he's blown up, what the Democrats are trying to create in the public mind is the idea that the whole case is blown up because this witness has. In the meantime, 95% of the evidence that the, that's been collected with respect to Burisma has absolutely nothing to do with Smirnoff. Yeah, I don't begrudge Democrats that that messaging strategy, but it is its own form of Navalny, as it were. Yeah. Uh, you're just arguing in order to, you know, change the facts on the ground and the court of public opinion which has no bearing. Yeah. Well, on this but, process. but, but no one think about it this way. 
what else is this about other than the court of public opinion, right? Sure. Biden's never going to be prosecuted and he's never going to be impeached. I, I mean, he may be, I don't think they'll ever have the votes to impeach him. They barely had the votes to get the inquiry over the, over the finish line, right? So they're never going to impeach him. And the main reason, I actually think what they should have done, because I thought Comer was doing a pretty good job on this, they should have just left this in the oversight committee and let them continue to build their case, which in terms of what they're trying to achieve, which is political accountability, I thought they were doing a pretty good job. But the thing is, you have Trumpies in Congress who like the idea of having a parallel investigation. While Trump is running the gauntlet of all these civil cases and criminal cases, they want to have something going on in Congress that's a parallel proceeding that they can call impeachment and and uh, fill with the, you know, the rhetoric and the atmospherics of public corruption so that they're going on at the same time. And Trump has a political argument to say, well, I may be bad, but he's even worse than I am or, you know, something to, to right. that effect. So, to me, this is all about the court of public opinion, right? Because there, there isn't anything else that's really ever going to come of it. Fair enough. All right, let's go back to Trump real quick before we get out of here, because we're going to have a criminal trial next month for Donald Trump. Um, maybe his best, in if you can call them best. But it's Alvin Bragg's trial, uh, the prosecution for the uh, the hush money to erotic actresses. Um, in your piece, Alvin Bragg prepares criminal version of A.G. James civil annihilation of Trump. You declare, quote, D.A. Bragg's prosecution is the most rigged thing I have ever seen. Now, we know the basic outlines of this. Uh, Bragg um, performed prosecutorial prestidigitation mm. to get the case before courts, before his courts, um, spun one transaction out into 34 felony counts. Now, one of the things I like about your writing, and I think it's extremely valuable, and it, it dovetails with um, my uh, my approach to these cases, is you're kind of of two minds on this thing. The first is that these are uh, real acts of uh, of straining the law, straining your jurisdictional um, authority in order to get after Trump. But the second is, and this can be reduced to throat clearing, and it probably shouldn't be. Of course, he did it. I mean, of course, he did. Obviously, he did it. But at the same time, you know, uh, this is this is a little excessive or perhaps a, a, a bit too much. Um, I don't think it should be reduced to throat clearing. I think it should be prominently featured that the guy has played fast and loose with the law, run afoul of statute, perhaps. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, this personal this particular prosecutor, Bragg, is not exactly a stickler for enforcement. So his you know approach to this is conspicuous. But you don't believe that's sufficient to scuttle the case. Just assumptions about the New York jury pool or the facts of the case? Well, my main thing is I read, I think um, Alvin Bragg has his own Judge Engeron in Juan Merchon, who we're going to know a lot more about in the next two months, but he is going to be the presiding judge in Trump's uh, criminal trial that you just described, uh, which is scheduled to start on March 25th. But he issued last week a 30-page pretrial order, which rejected all of Trump's motions to dismiss the indictment. Um, and it looked to me, reading that, that essentially Merchon is going to be a rubber stamp for Bragg. And he has bought whole hog 
uh, all of Bragg's theories about why he should be allowed to bring this case, why it's still alive within the statute of limitations. To me, the most outrageous part of it, there's a lot here that's outrageous. And, and in particular, you just mentioned the, you know, the taking one misdemeanor business falsification transaction and turning into 34 felonies in any prosecutor's office, you would only prosecute the misdemeanor if you charge that against other people as a matter of routine. Um, there's Justice Department regulations that tell prosecutors don't stack up the counts. You know, if you need five counts to to get an adequate amount of, uh, of prison time, um, that's how you should do an indictment. But you don't you don't carve something that ought to be one thing into 34 things as a way, not so subtle, to suggest to the jury, this must be a really bad guy if the government dumped 34 counts on him, which is exactly what, what Bragg has done here. But I think the most outrageous part is New York law says that this business, false, uh, business records falsification can become, uh, which is a two-year statute of limitations, can become a felony with a five-year statute of limitations, which becomes six years because of, of COVID, um, if you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the guy intended to conceal another crime by falsifying his records. And the other crime that Bragg is relying on is basically federal campaign finance violations. And the problem with that is Bragg doesn't have any authority to enforce federal campaign finance violations. And his theory for doing it here is incoherent because he says this case ought to be brought the way he has brought it because Trump used this, these hush money arrangements to steal the 2016 election. In other words, he was concealing this stuff and uh, from if, voters. Right. And what Bragg wants you to believe is if he had complied with the campaign finance laws, then this information would have been made aware to the public and Hillary would have been elected in the squeaker election that we had in 2016. So the problems with this are, are manifold, beginning with the fact that um, Trump's reimbursement to his former fixer, Michael Cohen, which is a pre-existing debt. Cohen is the one who laid out the money for this um, hush money arrangement with, with Stormy Daniels. Um, that's not a campaign finance. That's not a, that's not a political donation under federal law. If you believe that it was, what, what you'd be saying is that it would have been okay for Trump to pay the hush money to the porn star with campaign funds. Which I think if he had done that, Bragg would have indicted him anyway, right? On, on, on the opposite theory. But the reason this is really incoherent is Cohen makes this payment in October of 2016 before the election. If, if this had been a disclosable campaign expenditure, Trump would have had to report it in the next reporting period, which would have been in 2017 after the election was over. So even if it was campaign finance, the public would not have found out about it until 2017, until after the election. So none of this makes any sense. But I, I think John Yu makes the best constitutional point, which is it's up to the executive branch of the United States, the Justice Department, and the Federal Election Commission, which Congress has established basically to police federal campaign finance laws, to enforce those laws. 
And if a state prosecutor uses those laws in a, in a way that the Justice Department and the FEC wouldn't under federal guidelines, he's basically usurping the executive branch's enforcement authority. And he's got no power to do it because it's not his law. But, you know, Judge Merchan completely bought um, uh, Bragg's theory on this, and the case is going to go forward. And if you read Judge Judge Merchan's opinion, it's kind of like reading Judge Engeron's pretrial opinion in the civil case. You come away with the idea that, uh, you know, the, all that's uh, the only mystery here is whether he can convince the jury to convict because it looks like the judge is going to put his thumb on the scale on at least one count. All right. So let's put on your pundit hat. So we'll put a bow on this thing. Uh, this trial is going first uh, because of the immunity case pending before the Supreme court, which is delaying judge Chutkin's proceedings on the special prosecutors, federal case on the January 6th stuff, the federal electors. So at first blush, you would say that this Donald Trump is the luckiest man in history. He just completely lucks out every turn of the draw seems to go his way because all of us understand that these, this is built on a very flimsy foundation. But did the politics of this play differently when he's before a jury explaining why he made covert hush money payments to the erotic performers he was stooping? I mean, it's just a, it's the substance of the accusation he's defending himself against and that informs, by the way, the assumption that this is a genuinely unjust proceeding. Nevertheless, it is the reality that we're going to live through. How does it play? Yeah, I always feel bipolar with this kind of stuff because on the one hand, um, you know, I'm as, uh, I'm as put off by, a, by it as anyone. And I don't have trouble myself because of what I used to do for a living compartmentalizing the legal stuff from the political stuff. I think every one of these cases that we're talking about, Noah, whether it's Bragg's case or the uh, the Washington um, election interference case or the Mar-a-Lago documents case, the, the Atlanta thing, I don't know what's going to happen with that circus. But just let's stick with those three. They all underscore that Trump is unfit to be president which is like the most important and relevant thing in terms of, um, of the national interest here, right? Um, there's no excusing the behavior in a kind of cosmic, moral, ethical way. Um, but my training is to assess this as, as how it's going to play in court as a trial. And in the criminal law, it, there's other assumptions. You know, in the political world, all you need to hear is it's Trump. And you know there's something fishy going on, right? In this, in the criminal, in the four corners of a criminal trial, he's presumed innocent, and the only thing that's supposed to matter to the jury is what the specific charges are, what evidence got introduced at the trial, and how do the judges' legal instructions on what they're supposed to find at the end? How do how do those play out? Um, I, I think these are very weak legal cases, but you're quite correct that whether they're weak le legal cases or not, the facts that are going to come out are unsavory. And maybe if Trump can beat the cases, he'll be able to turn that into gold and say, see, the whole thing was all made up and, and they're after me and I'm being persecuted and I'm your, what did he say? I'm your retribution. Um, right. You know, maybe that'll work out for him. 
But, but if it doesn't play that way, it's just because everybody knows that this is Trump. This is how he behaves. They've sort of compartmentalized his his uh, moral failings. But again, this is th- then this is not a there but for the grace of God go I story, which yeah. is sort of what he's retailing. But but I think here what what you would what you would assess about this. I mean, I could say how I think the trials will come out. It looks to be like he's going to get, con- get convicted in New York based on what the judge has done on at least one count. And the logic of the indictment, since it's it's taking one thing and parsing it into 34, if he gets convicted on one, the chances are the final number of convictions is going to be a lot closer to 34 than, than one, right? But in terms of how it plays, I think you're more of an expert than I am to say, what is the impact? Well, no, no, I'm, I'm serious. What is the impact? I, I mean, I understand the polling is that if he gets any felony conviction, there is a material diminishment of his support in the in the states that are apt to decide the election. Yeah, I think a lot of that's aspirational on the part of people who are responding to polls, that they really want to not support somebody who's been convicted of a felony conviction, but they will rationalize themselves into it anyway. I don't think that that is true of everybody. There's a substantial portion, particularly among uh, female voters who are high propensity voters, yeah. who will, uh, who will uh, look on this with uh, disgust. And it, and it may you know hurt them in the long run, sure, on the margins, but the margins will matter in a very close election. Yeah, and, and I think that you know the the dynamic of this has always been, which is why I think it was it, it, it's sinister, but it was a brilliant plan by hmm. by the Democrats. This was always going to help Trump with the Republican electorate, and we now know that the you know beginning with Bragg's indictment, it really ended the the contest. Um, but by the time these trials came around, the audience was not going to be the Republican electorate anymore. It's going to be the general public where Trump is is much less popular than he is in the Republican electorate. And even if it only hurts him by a couple of points, a, a couple of points in this election might be everything. Andy, thank you so much for your time and helping me unravel a lot of things I didn't understand. I, I still don't understand them, but I know them better now than I did when we started an hour ago. Andy, I really appreciate well, it. That is all the time Thank we you have. So to- much, Noah. My pleasure. That is all the time we have today. You have been listening to a National Review podcast, which has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Rich will be back next week, and we'll see you then.